Hello and welcome to Dusty's Hideaway. Dusty's Hideaway! I'm Dusty Limits and this is my podcast because that's what the world was really crying out for, wasn't it? Yet another podcast. In this show I'll be interviewing some wonderful artists and asking them about the things that inspire them and the surprising things about which they are passionate. This podcast, as always, is dedicated to Kira Knightley. Who inspired it? Today, my guest is a very dear friend of 20 years, a wonderful singer, actress, lyricist, director, facilitator, in fact, a master of all trades. Please welcome theatre maker and cabaret superstar, Sarah Louise Young! Yay! I love that you said master. I, I, in, I've got con artists down, so it's nice that one, the intention is being received. <laughs> so it works. It does. I like that. I could add that to your list of credits. Notorious con artist, Sarah Louise Young. She's been conning audiences for 25 years. I know that we're not meant to laugh over each other, but Keira Knightley, God love her. I have met her several times. In fact, she came to my wedding and, and she's absolutely lovely. And, and the reason that, that this podcast exists is because many, many years ago when she was just starting out, and I'm, I'm glad you asked me about this, actually, because otherwise it's just one of those weird cryptic things that sounds like I'm being, you know, satirical and I'm not. She was just starting out. I think Pirates of the Caribbean maybe had just come out and she did one of those very standard magazine interviews where she talks about, you know, how she got into acting and how she got her first agent and all the stuff that, you know, celebrities have to say over and over and over promoting a film. And then she got onto the subject of feminism, about which she was very ardent, and she said something along the lines of, I, I really don't get young women my age, and, you know, at that point she would have been about 17, I think, who don't call themselves feminists. And I, my ears just pricked up and I thought, now that's a radio show where we get famous people in to talk about anything other than what they're famous for... Uh, so this is sincerely dedicated to Kira Knightley, who did in fact inspire it. And it's only taken me 15 years to do it. <laughs> Better late than never. OK, so we have digressed already. Um, in fact, our first lovely guest uh, on the show was the gorgeous Paulus, Paul Martin, who you know very, very well indeed. And in fact, I believe dated briefly as teenagers. Three weeks and three days. Did he tell you the story of the cinema trip? No. So the first film we went to see was Her Alibi, starring Tom Selleck. And the plan was we were going to have a snog every time they said murder, because it was a murder film. And they never said murder at all through the entire film. So the whole film was about when can we snog. So basically the next weekend, and neither of us had any money. His mum ran a catering company. We both worked for it. We used to hoover up all the booze at the end. And I literally would go from like glass to glass of champagne, pouring in the remnants from other people. You couldn't do it now. And slinging it down. So we went to see Baron Munchausen instead and snogged the entire way through and I have no idea what that film is about. Uh, saliva, mainly. So yes, three weeks and three days. That was before. Before a certain revelation came to him. Yes. Damascene. His Pauline conversion, quite literally. <laughs> so, so he, he uh, in, in the course of like preparing for the interview, um, and we were discussing how, the, the likelihood that we would go off piste, which was extremely high. And he said, look, darling, you steer the ship and I shall attempt to mutiny. <laughs> Well, one of your, you did send me some questions and one of the questions uh, is how did you get into your line of work? And basically I just wrote Paulus. It's all his fault. It's his fault. Because when we met, he was already a child actor. I mean, he had 10 by eights. He had headshots and he was 13, you know. Um, and so he's, I remember, but he doesn't remember this, this conversation, but we were in his bedroom surrounded by Garfields. And he said, I'm going to bring variety to the West End. And surely 20 years later, here we all are, Dusty. Yes, I mean, the West End by postcode, not the West End by definition. 
So for the listeners at home who might not be familiar with you and your work, which I would find very difficult to believe, because you are ubiquitous and extremely productive and you shame all the rest of us into feeling that we are basically lazy and never doing enough. Um, I have some pro forma questions for you. Are you ready? I am. Thank you. These are my constant craving questions. How would you describe your artistic work in one sentence? Now, it can be a run-on sentence, but I want one sentence and I need lots of adjectives and adverbs. Points will be deducted for a lack of adjectives. Oh, well, I wrote it down. I didn't think it should be too long. I'm a wig-wearing con artist storyteller who magics mistakes into marvellous theatre. Ooh, that's very nice. Very, very good indeed. OK, full points for that one. What do you think people think you're best known for? Survival. <laughs> I'm still here. I don't know. I mean, you know, we had the wind-up gramophone when I started out. Uh, probably Cabaret Whore or Julie Madley Deeply. It's, what's interesting, because I sort of, I always wonder if I'd just done one thing and kept going, I might be quite good. But because I get bored so quickly, I do lots and lots of different things. And occasionally you find people who've come and seen every show and they're sort of, they're like playing some weird elaborate game of Cluedo where they go, oh yes, and I saw this weird show you did. So I don't know what people, what I'm best known for. Uh, probably, probably, yeah, just surviving. For, for the listeners who don't know the shows, these are show titles, by the way, Cabaret Whore. No, you know, you're not just... <laughs> yeah, they're not street drugs. <laughs> <laughs> They're not street drugs. No. <laughs> yeah, a little baggy of Cabaret Hall, thank you, my good man. Uh, <laughs> uh, Julie Madly Deeply was a smash, though. I mean, you toured all over with that. You went to New York and did exciting yeah. things. Oh, my internet connection's unstable. It and me both. Uh, we were in Australia, dunking Tim Tams into teas, and uh, we'd just seen Simply Barbara, you know, Stephen Brimberg's wonderful show. And we, we said, like, is there anyone that you just couldn't make a show about? Like, who could you not make a show about? And uh, we said, well, you couldn't make a show about Julie Andrews because her voice is unique. And then we went, well, could you make a show about Julie Andrews but never be her? And within about, we weren't even drunk. Within about 24 hours, we'd basically written a brief for this show that didn't exist, sent it out to a few theatres. Three Australian theatres said yes and sent us a deposit. So I went out and got a wig and a dress. <laughs> and nine months later... You gave birth to the show. But- but thanks to the genius that is Russell Lucas, it isn't a tribute act in the conventional sense. So I think we always, I mean, we had the poster and the name before we had a clue what the show was going to be about. And originally it was going to be one of those, oh, is she really sweet and lovely or is she a total bitch? But unfortunately, she's really nice. Yeah. There was no dirt. Do you know if she ever saw it? Oh, that's, that's another podcast. Oh. She has never seen it. Friends of hers have seen it. Family of hers have seen it. Her personal manager sent us a cease and desist. We did not cease and desist. We're still here. Excellent. It's funny, actually, because you're talking about how not, not being a conventional kind of, you know, tribute show, and it isn't. It's, it's about a person who is obsessed with Julie Andrews. But now then your, your newest show that I'm aware of is the, your Kate Bush show, An Evening Without Kate Bush, uh, in which, once again, you do display a certain kind of tendency to, to obsessional fandom. Yes, we have to be careful. Someone said, oh, who, who are you going to do next? I was like, well, actually, the, the new show that would have been at Edinburgh this year was called The Silent Treatment, and it was about me. I know, how disgustingly self-centred, uh, and about voice loss, so that was a different show. But I realise I've been sort of turning... I don't know if you've ever done the, the, the artist's way. You know, Julia Cameron, this famous... It's been recommended to me so many times, and I've always intended to read it and never actually got round to it. That's fine. I can, I can summarise it for you. you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's a journey. It's, it's therapeutic. But she has a second book called The Vein of Gold, and she has this theory that everyone has a vein of gold. So take Meryl Streep. We love her. She can do no wrong. But we really love it when she does tragedy. 
Yeah. She can do comedy, but we really love it when she does tragedy. So I realized, I think my vein of gold is exploring the voice. And I realized that over the years, I've been exploring that and turning it around and putting it through different lenses. And the thing with Julie and Kate, they're, they're very different artists, obviously, because Kate Bush makes her own work. But the relationship that we as the fans have with this, this feeling that we own people. And it's so interesting, you know, you and I have this, you do a gig, people want to chat to you afterwards. Where's the bar? Where's the line where it's okay to say, I've just been performing. That's my job done now. Thank you. And I'm going to go home, but I might chat to you on Twitter. So that was what I was interested in with Julie. It was a sort of, it was an in because so many people had this kind of obsessive childhood fandom with her that she couldn't be that. She wasn't this nanny or this nun. She was a woman. She had sex. She had kids, you know. And then with Kate, it was more like, we call it like a tribute to the fans because of this amazing thing where you've got an artist who's created this work, kind of gone into a clearing in the forest under cover of dark, left it in the middle and then fucked off and got, don't talk to me talk to the art. So because you're actually working on a musical now, aren't you, called Maxa? We are, again, you see, I didn't realise it, but this is set in the 1920s French horror theatre and there was this amazing tiny chapel that got converted into a horror theatre. It ran from the very, very end of the 1900s and kind of fell apart in the 60s. But in its heyday, it was second after the Eiffel Tower as top tourist attraction. It was courted by, I was going to say nuns, uh, by royalty. But it had this star, this woman, Maxa, la femme plus assassinée du monde. Oh, you're making me want wine now. Um, And she was famously killed 10,000 times on stage and raped 6,000 times. And she had this famous scream, which she lost in the end. She damaged her voice and she died of throat cancer, alone in a hospital bed at the age of 70. That's not what the show is about. But I realised that thing of what is your voice? What is your true voice? Where does it come from? How much of who we are is absorbed by what we grew up with? That's what I'm exploring in the silent treatment. So, yes, that's musical I'm writing with Michael Wilson. It's a 10-person musical. It's uh, it's a monstrous epic piece. And I just recorded yesterday the last song that we've written for it, which is her her kind of want song, which is called When Do I Get to Live, which I love. But there's so much of it, and it's so it gloriously, it's so gloriously varied. You know, I've kind of been plugging the same, ploughing rather, the same furrow for 20-something years. And you've played all these different characters, created all these different facets. And I'm, I'm I, you know, I'm not comparing us in any kind of invidious way because, because I'm a lazy git and I'm pretty comfortable in these shoes. But uh, it's... Can I interrupt with a question for you then? What? Yes, you may. No, because I think, I, I think you're being harsh on yourself because, to my mind, there's Dusty Limits, the compare, and the songwriter, which people who've only seen you host might not know, you beautiful songs that you write with Michael. But there's also, you know, I've, we've acted together. You know, you've played Scrooge, we did the Pantos, you've got Dr. Sketchy... You, I think you pan out. I just think we get used to our own achievements and we don't see them. And it's only when someone asks you to put them on a page and you go, oh, yeah, oh, I did that. Oh, yeah, and there was that. And there was that, you know, and there was that. So I'm just throwing that back at you, that I think you're, you, you've, you've, done more, you've done more with your life than you thought, Dusty. But have I done enough? Oh. <laughs> OK, so we know you got into this line of work. It's all Paulus's fault. Any complaints, please direct them to him. But was there like a, a form, an early formative experience? So the, the, the analogy I use is, is was, was it a gradual slide? And in that case, what was the gateway drug? I would love to say that it was really clear and obvious from the beginning. But it, it was definitely a slide because it never occurred to me that it would be a sustainable, viable career option. And then when I realized it was never going to be a sustainable, viable career option, I stopped worrying about it and got on with it. But um, when I was four and a half, I was in the school production 
I mean, they, they never made any cohesive sense. They were just weird animals and things. And everyone else got to be a fairy and I got to be the cat. And I didn't really appreciate that the cat had a solo because I just wanted to be like everybody else. And I did my solo and I was terribly upset that I hadn't got to be a fairy. And then I was in the toilets at school. So I'm like four and a half, five. And I heard these two girls slagging off the cat in the next cubicle. And I believe that that trauma has led to me spending the rest of my life just trying to be good enough. For those two bitchy little girls. Yeah, where are they now? Um, in, in, as a serious response to your, your, your question, I remember being at university, because in my family, I've got um, a very academic family, and my mum was very clear that we would all go to university. She never forced us, but, you know, we would go to university. So I went to Bristol University. I mean, I was supposed to do theology, and then I sidestepped onto French and Spanish, and then I segued into the Spanish and drama. And then I kind of ended up with English and drama from Bristol University, which sounds much more impressive than it is because I got in the back way. But I do remember a point when I stopped wanting to be the best person in a show and I wanted the show to be good. And that was definitely a turning point of like, this isn't just an ego trip anymore. I want to make good theater. And while I was at university, there was this arts festival and I got a chance to do a solo piece and it was a 10 minute show about a drag king. And then I just loved it. And I thought, oh, this is really great. Apparently I can write. And then I said, oh, I'm going to turn this into a one hour solo show. And then a few months later, someone said, have you done that? And I lied and said, yes. And they said, great, we've got a slot at one o'clock in the morning at Sea Venues in Edinburgh. Do you want to come and do it with a free shot of vodka for everyone that comes? So Edinburgh really, Edinburgh was the big, the big thing. And getting to the end of that Edinburgh where we were doing four shows a day, four different shows a day. We were only meant to be doing three as a company. We picked up another show in the van on the way up because Hartley had had a company drop out of a kid's show of Jabberwocky and he phoned our director and went, hey, you guys, do you want to come and do another show? We're like, yeah, fuck it. We'll pick up a set on the way, wrote the show in the van, got to the end of that Edinburgh, had lost about two stone, was malnourished, had made no money and was like, I want to do this for the rest of my life. Kids, kids, were you listening to that? That's the, that's the reality. That's not the dream. That's the reality. Oh, my goodness. Oh, that's fantastic. OK, so final pro forma question. What do you make of this headline from today's news? Now, this is off the BBC website. Uh, John Cage musical work changes chord for first time in seven years. Um, but I don't know. Is this to do? I thought this was an organ that after a period of time has changed its note. What would you guess it was about? Keeping in mind, it's John Cage who wrote four minutes and 33 seconds, which is four minutes and 33 seconds of, of silence. Some orchestras play it better than others. But this is called from a piece called As Slow As Possible. Oh. It began 19 years ago with a pause lasting 18 months. It's supposed to last 639 years. The, the full... oh, so does that mean after a certain period of time of silence there's a new chord played. So this is an epic point where the chord gets played. Yes. And so it's like the solar eclipse. You have to just be there when it happens. Yeah, yeah. I think people congregate. It's very John Cage, but also there's something quite profound about the idea of a piece that will last many times longer than the lifespan of its composer. and Or, or indeed it's first... I mean, there's no first. There's no, no one will ever hear this piece from start to finish. That struck me. I, one of the many jobs, the idea with Paulus was he'd go in and have a job, say if it was okay, and then call me in and I'd do the job after him. So the Canterbury Cathedral gift shop was one of these jobs. And I remember looking at the cathedral and thinking, the person who designed this never got to see it made. And what that must be like, because we are so uh, obsessed with our legacy, and yet we very rarely get to enjoy our legacy because we're dead. And I thought, wow, there's something wonderfully generous 
about that, about acknowledging that you are just the building block in something. So I think, I guess it's like a time capsule, that song. Yeah. And something rather beautiful. But I also question like, then the, the event of it, the happening of it is probably more satisfying than the actual artistic experience. I mean, someone's bound to, you know, leak the piece and record it in four and a half minutes and throw it out. Leave it up. And ruin the magic of it completely. You just made me think of it as it, it's, it's a musical cathedral. It's all about space and expansiveness and time and timelessness. And, oh, we're getting very deep now. Well, it's like, the, you know, there's the slow food movement where people are encouraged to, you know, spend four hours making their food, which is like a dinner at my house where I plan something, it goes wrong, and then we order takeout. It takes four hours. But there is something beautiful about acknowledging your place in the world. And I remember one of the reasons I was going to study um, theology at, at uh, university and then change my mind was because I was fascinated by... I think I've been obsessed by dying. I've been obsessed by mortality. There isn't a day that goes by that I don't think about what is the point of it all. But also, isn't that why you end up making art, isn't it? To make sense of your life. And I mean, even the stuff that's flippant, that doesn't seem... I mean, I love stuff that's joyful, but I, I like stuff that's made with love and danger. That's what I always say. Like, I want the sense of danger, but I want to believe it's been made with love rather than cynicism. And I think over the years, the work I'm making... Michael always say, when we come off stage after doing Julie Madly Deeply, it makes us feel like better people than we actually are. <laughs> so... <laughs> And I, we did a show called Songs for Cynics and I now look at those songs and I love them, but they're terribly dark. So how do you reconcile the dark and the light, the, the shadow stuff? You know, it's Jung. My, my, my personal slogan is to make light of the darkness in both senses of make light of, you know, mock it, laugh in its face, make light of it, but also turn those dark things into light, but without denying the darkness. You can't ignore your shadow because it's with you all the time. You know, if you turn around, there it is. Um, well, this has got sort of super profound. The, the theology training has obviously kicked in. I think we now feel as though we think we know you as Sarah Louise Young Cabaret star. But before we go to the next and more revealing section, it's time for Fun Fact Corner with Snuggles. Fun Fact Corner. With snuggles. Oh, you got out of the chair. That was good. Okie dokie smoky. So, for those here new at Dusty's Hideaway, we like to dedicate a section of our podcast to something we call Fun Fat Corner with Snuggles. During Fun Fat Corner, we like to share some interesting and slightly useless facts with the world that in some way relates to our special guest. How that relates to them, however, is entirely up to you, our listeners, or all of our listeners of one. So, past fun facts have included Santa's beating up old ladies for chocolate and spider penises. So, Sarah Louise Young, are you ready for your fun fact of the day? I really am. The fun fact of the day is to do with the moon. Everyone knows that the first words on the moon were one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. And that was all said by Neil Armstrong. He's everyone loves him. Go Neil. However, less known are the last words on the moon. Now, this was by Eugene Cernan, the last man on the moon, on the Apollo 17 mission in 1972. So I still wasn't even alive then. That's quite fun. Thanks. That's that's a good fun fact for everyone. (laughs) Eugene said, America's challenge of today has forged man's destiny of tomorrow. The moon exploration involved six more missions over three years and involved 12 more astronauts. Now, that is an interesting fact. However, what I find more interesting about this is that no one really gives a shit. (laughs) As soon as Neil happened, everyone's like, yeah, we've done that now. I don't don't really care about the rest of you. (laughs) Who, who, Who even knew who the last man on the moon was? Like, I've never heard of this chap. I've never heard that quote before in my life. No. 
the, the first three, yay, and then the last guys are like, well, we did the moon too, why don't, why don't the history books mention us? So, Sarah, just off the top of your head, can you think of any of the other, like, astronauts who've potentially gone to the moon? I know there was a dog, wasn't there? And, see, I thought you were going to say, what was the last word said, leaving the moon, which I thought would be something like, are you sure you closed it properly? Or, <laughs> you know, like, nothing profound. Probably the first word was, oh, fuck! <laughs> I think, you're probably, I think you're pretty close there, babe. I'm not going to lie. All right. That's our fun fact. <laughs> All right, I'm going to bugger off again. Bye. Thank you, Snuggles. So you're probably wondering how on earth this relates to your your next section of the show. Oh, whoops. Okay. Okay, so now it's time for your secret love. Secret love. In this segment, we discuss something you're passionate about that isn't to do with your work and that might surprise people. If you do reference your work as a performer, I shall ring a small bell. Now, that's not actually a small bell. It's me tapping my wine glass with this pencil. So, Sarah Louise Young, cabaret superstar, what is your secret love? My secret love is cheese. Cheese. Did you make the moon cheese connection? I, I never, I never have. It took me a long time to even see the man in the moon. I'm not really even sure if it is a man or if it's a ferret. The the notorious moon ferret. <laughs> I'm being followed by a moon ferret. Oh no, that's going to be in my head now. Okay, let's start with the most obvious question. What is your favourite cheese? What is your, as it were, desert island cheese? Oh, that's a really tricky conversation. Uh, just because it really depends. It's like, what's your favourite song? It depends what you're in the mood for. I have a strong affection for a good cheddar, like an Isle of Mull that's got a crisp saltiness about it. But I have a very, I have a nostalgic affection for Roblochon because uh, I did a school exchange when I was 14 and I'm still friends with the family. And they would bring out these cheeses and the Roblochon was from the region. And it was just... Oh, it's just lovely, but it was available at every every meal time. So, uh, I mean, I, I have I have high cholesterol because of this cheese love. <laughs> I, you know, when you're forty, you get you get the forty to seventy health check. Now you can do it at any time between forty and seventy. It's not fussed really. And I went to the lady, and you know, she looked at my results. She said, I'm, "I'm kind of embarrassed." She said, "Because you know, you exercise, you don't smoke. Obviously, I'd lied about how much I drink." I said, "Is there anything you can think of?" She's only a little bit high and it's, it's not going to kill you yet. But she said, I mean, honestly, the only way you could get these kind of results would be if you had like cheese board every night. <laughs> I have curbed my enthusiasm and also because ethically I am now trying to buy cheese that is not as mass produced. You know what it's like. You have to spend more money and go to weird shops where people offer you bits on a knife. I can't afford that at the moment. But when, when were you first aware that you were? Actually, I'll do the next question now. Um, so please rate your level of obsession from one to seven. One is mildly curious. For example, I am mildly curious about 16th century um, ecclesiastical art. And uh, seven is dangerously obsessed to the point where it might threaten your relationship. Mildly curious sounds like a good name for a cheese. <laughs> I would say six, although there have been a couple of cheeses in the fridge recently that I've had to put in two layers of packaging and box because my partner is not as into cheese as I am. Oh. I like it when it's running off the plate as well. So I take it out early. He doesn't understand why I take it out early so it gets to room temperature. That's Cold cheese is an abomination. You wouldn't necessarily, I mean, I grew up in Australia, as you know, and you wouldn't necessarily leave out a cheddar in Australian heat uh, because it gets horribly sweaty and, and a bit mm. gross. And if you left out a brie or a camembert, it would just be goo. 
It would just literally be completely horizontal. Yeah, exactly. Um, I went to Norway when I was uh, 14. We were, we were vegetarians. My mum, the whole family became vegetarians when I was seven. I mean, they were other ages, but obviously I remember it. And I was a vegetarian from seven to 21. And when I went to Norway, they'd not really, it was a huge scout camp. And they just, I don't think they'd met a vegetarian before. So I would go every day on this long walk to get a carrier bag with my vegetarian food options, which was usually a carrot, a cucumber and some cheese. But they had this weird brown cheese, which I've never come, it smelled awful. And of course, the smell of cheese is a huge part of its taste. I think that's, I, I pretty much will eat anything. Yeah. I'm not a cheese obsessive, but I do, I do love a morsel of cheese, you know, de temps en temps. And I, I do appreciate, as you say, just how important the smell actually is. Because mildly curious would, would taste very little and barely smell at all and would be a, a, a waste of cheese. Um, but, you know, I do like the really stinky cheeses, but in, in, in tiny amounts. I, I, I got addicted when I was living, when I was in my little gap year, when I was 18, I was living with my aunt in Grenoble in the south of France. And my cousin uh, introduced me to um, Roquefort cheese. But what he would do would, he, he'd take a fresh baguette, he'd spread it with a lot of butter and then just a little bit of Roquefort. So it was, it was kind of blended in with the butter. It wasn't like overpowering and melting the roof of your mouth kind of an experience. Because sometimes... Roquefort and Stilton and things, you can really feel like it's, it's, you know, the enzymes are burning through the inside of your head. The other fun fact about cheese, actually, is that uh, it stimulates dopamine production. And mm. significantly, and other things that stimulate dopamine, are not from experience, but I'm, I'm told, tale has it, that uh, cocaine, uh, which, as we know, is an addictive substance, uh, allegedly... So it also stimulates dopamine cascades. So you, you could actually be a genuine addict to cheese uh, yeah i think i might be um because i grew up a million years ago it was really hard to get things without animal fat in them we used to lobby the local co-op to get can we have biscuits without animal fat and can we have cheese without rennet my mum made us write letters to the supermarket she also made us write letters to the local cinema to stop them showing the last temptation of christ because <laughs> we I, I think the cheese quest was slightly more successful uh so it was hard to find cheese without rennet in them so it was, um, I can't even remember why I'm telling you that now. I was to do, oh yeah, so, so, but, so I, uh, we grew up, my mum tried to make cottage cheese from soya milk. God love her. She's an incredible woman. I mean, it's just, we had five kids and we always like, and I was really fussy eater. I would literally just eat sausages, cheese, and maybe a bit of carrot and apple. And then we turned, I turned seven, we turned vegetarian. Suddenly there was this wealth. But my mum tells me that as a, I mean, I do remember, but she's, I would not go to bed without a hunk of cheese and some warm milk had to have warm milk and a chunk of cheese. Now, you know, cheese makes your dreams crazy. So yeah. may explain a lot. And she used to, she was obsessed with protein because obviously she wanted us to be fit and healthy. So every meal had to have protein. And <laughs> she would, I would, I remember going out to play, like some kids would have an apple. I would literally have a fist of cheese. <laughs> no matter how broke we were, there was always cheese. I mean, I've got very strong nails. That sounds like the title of your, of your, uh, maybe straight to video um, uh, action adventure flick, martial arts adventure fl flick, a fistful of cheese. But weirdly, uh, the, the smell thing is interesting. So I, I have a very sensitive nose, which is a pain sometimes because you, like if someone's been ill in a room and the next day and they think they've cleared it up, I'm like, who's been sick? Mm. Uh, and Waterloo Station for me, just underground smells. It must be something to do with the detergent they use. But, but off milk, I think there's a trauma. Now, I don't know what it was like for you growing up in, in Australia, but we had free milk. Uh, when I was growing up and there were these tiny bottles of milk but in the winter they would leave them on the radiators and in the summer they would leave them outside so the milk was 
always, and I'm a young, my surname's young, as you know, so by the time I would get the milk last and I just would do anything to get out of having to, I would volunteer to be milk monitor so that I could not give myself milk. So that there is this trauma around the smell. And I worked in a cheese shop. I'd forgotten until you asked me this. I worked in a cheese shop in Bristol and um, I was very proud of myself. I used to be able to cut a slice of 250 grams just by sight of a brie because I'd done it so often. But the man who owned this shop was having an affair and he knew I spoke French. So he got me to phone these hotels in France and book him hotel rooms for him and his lover. Then his wife would come in and go, I'm so, my husband's being so strange. Do you know, has he said anything to you? And I left in the end, I couldn't cope with it. I have another cheese related trauma. Uh, I was taking out a whole wheel, a disc of brie and the fridge had broken. I sliced into this cheese in front of the customers and I kid you not, like 50 maggots crawled out of this cheese. Oh, the listeners can't see my face right now, but you can. Oh, my God. Pooped up the cheese and went, oh, I'm so sorry. I don't think that's ready yet. Oh, maggots everywhere. Isn't there a cheese, though? I'm, I'm not making this up. There is a cheese, a, a delicacy kind of cheese, where maggots are part of the experience. I'm sure there is somewhere. Because the thing with cheese is, as well, you're, you're tolerating smells and sensations that you wouldn't tolerate out of the context of cheese. You know what I mean? Like, the smell of blue cheese, if it's your socks, is not alluring. But if it's cheese, you're like, oh, yeah, I love that. Oh, God, go for that. Oh, yeah. People get very sexual about cheese. <laughs> I, I, like, I like a morsel of cheese from time to time, but I'm not, I, don't, I wouldn't sell the house to feed my cheese addiction. Funny you keep mentioning France because you're a bit of a, a Francophile, aren't you? I am. Again, another inheritance from my mum because she loved France. I, I started with Spanish, but it, I'd never been to Spain. I didn't really, I could hardly string a sentence together in English, let alone Spanish. But France, I went, I did this school exchange with this wonderful family, spent the whole, I've literally been learning five, Fran, French for like five months. The only thing I knew how to say was where's my bedroom and where's the tourist office. And they'd pointed both of those out when I first arrived. So I had no communication skills. But by the end of the week, I suddenly remembered all those stupid, useless phrases you know, oh, je m'appelle Jean-Paul, j'habite à Lyon, j'ai deux ans. And so I got an orange. We were on this walking trip and started making the orange talk, just using all the phrases I had. And there was a moment of going, oh, thank God they get me. They know I'm an idiot. And then I went back the next year and I just kept learning French. So it was, it was totally driven by this wonderful family who lived in Annecy, uh, Dussard in Annecy. And they were, the Alps were around them and the cheese and the wine. And the, oh, my God. Uh, yeah, so that, that began, that and my mum. So hence La Poule is really an homage to my love of France. And PF, I got given a PF uh, album. My friend's dad was, uh, you've got 10 hours, haven't you? My friend's dad did house clearances and he arrived with four vinyl discs. One was, um, uh, it is PF. One was a Sondheim double bill. One was Roy Orbison. And one was um, Aretha Franklin. Oh, and wow. so- 15, 16 year old brain was just like, what? Like, that's the best of the best, basically. Incredible. Especially for someone who's a vocalist, you know, that must have just, your ears must have just been bursting with, with sound and joy. Oh. Yeah, I, was, I learned to, harm, I learned to harmonise um, listening to the Everly Brothers and Sam Cooke because I had a double album of that. And listening to the, the Everly Brothers and joining in and trying to find that extra third, that's totally now I, where I learned to harmonise. Wow. And Annecy, I've been to Annecy, I think, again, when I was on a, on my gap year. That's in the south, isn't it? Yeah, Lac d'Annecy. It has this huge, pure, lovely water, water yeah. spring water. 
I had a I had a Eurail pass as it was back then, so I could just catch as many trains as I wanted. You had it validated, and you can basically go anywhere you wanted. Uh, and because uh, I was staying in Grenoble, I just I just went to places that were like day trips, so I could be home in time for supper. And yeah, I remember Annecy being very beautiful. That's unrelated to cheese. Um, okay, okay. Now, so, okay, so what we know about you now is that you have dangerously high cholesterol and I could lose you any second as a guest. So let's make the most of the few possibly minutes you have left uh, in this life. But see, this, I don't buy this because you are also a fitness obsessive. Well, that's so that I can keep eating the cheese. Uh, I do, it used to be called British Military Fitness and then Bear Grylls bought, uh, bought it and now it's B-Mill Fit. So I beam it. I was there this morning. So this is basically running around outside with ex-military doing uh, burpees, which I didn't even know what that was. And I've been doing about eight years and I kind of love it because everyone who does the classes I go to are self-employed because they're at 9.30 in the morning. So there's other people who share your kind of crazy chaotic life. And I like the structure because most of the time, same as you, I have to be self-motivated. I have to get up and say, right, we need to do this and this and this and this. And I've got the four color biro on the go. But just for an hour, I'm not in charge. And they tell me what to do. And they're not, they only pretend to shout at you. If they actually were not encouraging, none of us, we would revolt. There was one instructor who used to treat us like we were in the army and we just, we just sacked it off. It wasn't happening. Yeah. I've, I've never done anything like that in my life and I've no intention of doing it, but I've, I'm, I'm finding your description of it in no way tempts me to change my mind. <laughs> Honestly, you and I are as surprised as each other because I, I used to not like early mornings. I certainly don't like that. And we do it in the mud and the hail and the rain. And I don't know. I just, I think I, I know that I should do yoga and I should do Pilates and all of these things, but I like something where I get a proper sweat on. And also, God, if you, if you're in a bad mood, if some, something, someone's let you down or you didn't get the job or whatever, I can really let that rage out as I run along the common. Cause I'm not a very angry. I don't let my anger out very often. Well, that's where the French character comes from. She's, she's a depository for my trauma. I think you can, you can actually really capitalise on this as well because I was looking at one of your promo videos, actually, um, for um, the, the Kate Bush show, An Evening Without Kate Bush, and there's one still where you look so much like Kate Blanchett. It's absolutely uncanny. I wanted to do a screen grab of it and send it to you because it's just at the angle and your natural bone structure. There is a resemblance. But I was just thinking, you know, she's done, like, um, Ragnarok and she was all, like, really buff for that. So I think you doing this biffle mill mill malict Bad motherfucker. I think I think we're really good for when you actually film a fistful of cheese. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, so talking too much about your work, I didn't get to do the dinger. I'm going to do a retrospective ding, just because I like the sound it makes. Um, how do do you think your secret love? This is a, this is one of the pro forma questions. I'd really I'm fascinated to see if you can answer this. Do you think your secret love relates in some way to your profession? <laughs> <laughs> I suppose the links that we've said that it, it sort of it connects to my love of France and I've ended up writing a musical set in France and I have a character who's French. I can't really afford it. <laughs> it, it, uh, it can really go off if you don't give it the right attention. Uh, everyone has an opinion on it. <laughs> uh, sometimes one gets to practice, someone, sometimes one gets to do it really, really high end and sometimes you want the shoddy processed part of your life. <laughs> I think you've covered all the bases with that. That was I'm going to give you a round of applause. <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh dear, I'm crying. Oh, I have a sudden weird craving for cheese actually. 
I have a sudden weird craving for wine, seeing you drinking it. I'm supposed to be, I'm not supposed to be drinking this week because we go into the rehearsal room tomorrow to extend the Kate Bush show. And I haven't put on that leotard for a long time. Right. Well, I'm drinking for you, you see. So I'm drinking so that you don't have to. Thank you. Very giving like that. Okay, well, unless there are any further questions, unless you'd like to ask me a question, but don't feel that you have to. I think it's best when I do as little talking as possible. Um, Thank you so much, Sarah Louise Young. Thanks for having me. I feel like I have talked an awful lot. (laughs) Dusty's Hideaway. You've been listening to Dusty's Hideaway with me, Dusty Limits, Sebastian Snuggles, Angelique, and this time round our gorgeous guest, the amazing Sarah Louise Young. If you like what you've heard, do please check out our Patreon links and websites. And we'll see you next time. Obviously, we won't. It's audio only. We all know that. Written and performed by Mark McInnes and Oliver Retter. Produced by Mark McInnes. All rights reserved.